Every play, every musical, begins with some writer putting words on a page. Hello, and welcome to Stagecraft, the Broadway radio podcast that talks to playwrights and musical book writers about the shows they've created. My name is Jan Simpson, and my guest this week is Charlie Yvonne Simpson, whose new play, Behind the Sheet, is running at the Ensemble Studio Theatre through February 5th. Sponsored by a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, which supports theater that deals with subjects related to science or medicine, Behind the Sheet is a moving historical drama that centers around a group of enslaved women who played a major part in the development of gynecology in this country. Hello, Charlie Yvonne Simpson. Welcome to Broadway Radio. Hi, thank you for having me. And I think I should uh, let listeners know that we don't think we're related, even though the last name is, <laughs> is the same. We usually start these conversations by talking just a bit about what the show is about for listeners who haven't had a chance to see it. So sure. would you tell them what Behind the Sheet is about? Yeah, sure. Um, Behind the Sheet is a uh, fictionalized portrayal of a uh, of a doctor by the name of Jay Marion Sims. That's the, the real person. Uh, Dr. Uh, Marion Sims was a uh, gynecologist. He's considered the father of American gynecology. And he uh, figured out a way to fix fistulas, which is a, um, a condition um, that um, some women get as a complication to labor. But he figured this out by experimenting on enslaved black women in the 1840s without the use of anesthesia. So the play is an attempt to to share the story, but most importantly, to bring light to the story of the women that he worked on. We know three of their names in real life, Anarcha, Betsy, and, and Lucy, but he worked on upwards of, of 10 women. Um, so the play is really an attempt to shed light on uh, their contribution to the field of gynecology. Where did you get the idea for this play? How did it come about? A few years ago, um, I, you know, I was on the internet, as you do, <laughs> and um, I, I believe it was Gawker that had an article on the statue of J. Marion Sims that used to be in the perimeter of Central Park. It, it was removed in April and moved to uh, Greenwood Cemetery where he's buried. But a few years ago, um, you know, we were all having this big conversation about statues, most most of us talking about Confederate statues. And so this Gawker article sort of shed, you know, shed light on the fact that like we had statues in New York that were also in dispute and it one being J. Marion Sims. And so I was sort of like, who is this person? You know, what what is why are people protesting him? Because um, the article sort of, you know, gave a very, from what I remember, a cursory sort of like glimpse into his work. And so I went down a Google rabbit hole and, you know, spent like an hour you know, going from website to website, just reading about about his work and, and about the, the women that he worked on. And so that sort of like planted a seed, and you know, and I went on about my life. But then uh, I uh, was a member of Youngblood, which is a writer's group um, at Ensemble Studio Theatre, and they encouraged all of us to submit proposals to, this ES, to the EST Sloan Project, which is 
a project between EST and the Alfred Priestel um, Foundation, um, which gives money to playwrights to write plays about science and technology. I was really looking for something that I personally felt like I connected to and could really dive into, and I remembered that article. And so I went back to my Google and went down another Google rabbit hole and, and it came up with a concept for for the play. Huh. But you don't use Sims's actual name um, in the play or the pl- or, or the names of I guess any of, of the, the women. three women uh, that we mm-hmm. know. Why did you make that decision? Early on it was a uh, honestly it was like a a way to get out of my head decision, you know, because we're, we're talking about a historical piece. And when I was, when I was using the real people's names, I, I felt like I needed to make sure every detail in the play actually happened, hmm. which was really hard because I don't know what happened to Anna Garbetsi and Lucy. You know, we, we have some information, we have Sims's autobiography, but on a day-to-day basis, I don't know what their lives actually were like. We can surmise, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't have their words. At some point, uh, the advisors on the uh, on the project at EST were like, "Well, Charlie, like you know, you just have to write a story, right? <laughs> like you have to." At the end of the day, this is you know, it is it is a, a play, and so at first, changing the names was just a way for me to feel like I got some distance <sighs> from the real people, so I, I could feel to you know, like okay, I'm going to fudge this detail here, add this in here, and then later on, it really became about the fact that like I don't have. The words of Annika, Betsy, and Lucy, and I don't want to put words in their mouth. We've been doing enough of that anyway. <laughs> um, so, um, so then it, it, it really became much more of a of an active choice. The fact of the matter is, everyone sort of knows that the well, everyone wants sort of the play and knows the real names of the people, um, and it allows them to go and then Google further to see the way that the play deviates from reality or in the ways in which it doesn't. You know, and I, I thought that it was very important to to make sure that we were giving that information, um, but for the play to sort of be able to live and breathe and, and be its own thing, I had to, you know, sort of begin to imagine each character as an amalgam of several people. You know, even in my play, the the, the Sims character is named Dr. George Berry, and I did, you know, research on surgeons at the time and medical beliefs at the time. So there are things that Dr. George Berry says in my play that I might not have written proof that Sims said, but I know that other doctors at the time have said that <laughs> or believed that. Um, so it allowed for a little bit of freedom in that way. It seems as though you did quite a bit of research um, on this play, not just on the the people as much as you were able, but on the medicine, the science of mm-hmm. the time. Was that part of your background medicine science or was this a whole new world for you no i mean i mean my short answer is that i always sort of wanted to be a doctor (laughs) i think i I went to when i went to college i applied and i said that uh the three majors i gave as possibilities were theater which made sense um (laughs) neuroscience and egyptology so i've always had like a random (laughs) sort of like group of things that i wanted to study i also was like as a kid i was like all about those tlc birth stories, anything that I could watch about. Now I'm like, oh, I like clearly had this interest in like gynecology and obstetrics, right? <laughs> like I watched all of those things. I remember the biology section of, you know, in, in high school, the, the biology class that was about the reproductive system, like I was like, that was my section, like I got it. 
And so there's clearly like part of me that was really sort of excited to let that part of my brain do what it wants to do, you know? In so many ways, yes, this was, it was new to me. I'm not a scientist, but like the childhood fascination came back. And I think that's one of the, the lovely things sort of about doing something like an EST Sloan project because it, it really does allow you to sort of go off and study this thing that, you know, maybe, maybe you do have some background in, but most likely you don't. And you have to sit there, like, I remember reading things and being like, I do not understand what this means. And having to call my friends who are doctors and be like, do you understand what this means? <laughs> explain hmm. it to me so that I can explain it to other people. You know, and it was also hilarious because sometimes my doctor friends would be like, we don't do that anymore. I don't know what that means. <laughs> you know? So yeah, so I, so I it, it really just allowed me to lean into interests I already had. And then, you know, like on a, a personal note, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I'm someone who has to go to the gynecologist. So it allowed me to begin to put more scientific understanding to experiences that I had or was having in my own life, um, which allowed me to lean even more into it. So it became as much about the play and learning about that and, and learning about my own body and my own experiences. Um, was it yeah. difficult to keep um, in balance the story, the science, just all of those various pieces? Yeah. Yes. Yes. You know, the, 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 the difficulty with an EST Sloan play is that, you know, you, you are ultimately writing a play, um, but there is some expectation that there's going to be science and technology in it, you know, and or technology in it. Um, and so, you know, there are, there are moments and drafts of the play where you can definitely see me struggling with this where like I want to brush over the science and it's like well I can't actually like I actually can't do that um, and so it became this this exercise of like how can I put in enough science and medicine and history so that the audience gets the context for it mm-hmm. um, that a I know an OBGYN sitting in the audience is like okay that's good enough historian is like okay that's good enough and you know a a general theater audience person who's not either one of those professions is like okay cool um and so that became like a delicate you know balance and I had people read it and different readings of it I'd be like do we need this piece of science do we need more of this science and you know it 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 still is, is interesting to me sitting in the audience and sort of hearing what moments of the the more scientific conversation really hit people and it's sort of lovely to sort of hear those reactions and understand like, oh, actually including that detail was extremely important for the understanding of this play, which I maybe didn't understand when I was first writing it. Now, obviously, this is not your first play. So what what is the experience of having requirements that you have to fulfill? Was that helpful? Was mm-hmm. it not? Do you like it? Or would you prefer <laughs> to just, I'm going to write what I want to write? No, it's it's interesting. I I I'm not someone who usually writes from an outline. I'm not um, someone who usually even sort of knows where the plays my plays are going when I first sit down. Um, so this was this was, was different in that you know I had a proposal. I didn't know I I didn't have to tell them the plot points of the play, but in theory I had these characters and history gave me the plot points. You know, and so it was. I, I remember like the first few. Uh, scenes that I was writing I was like oh how do I approach this which is usually not a question I ask Mm -hmm. (laughs) I usually just like sort of sit down and get to like oh I have this image in my head and I begin to write around that image Mm -hmm. um and this felt like okay what is the approach how do I do this how do I how do I stay balanced how do I negotiate the 
variety of opinions that people have about this topic, you know, and how do I stay true to myself as a writer? And so in some way, um, in some ways I loved it. Like I did really love the research um, aspect of it. Um, mm-hmm. It really, you know, like I said, you know, it, it connects to that part of my, my brain. It was really hard sort of making the choices of like how, uh, how, how realistic am I? Um, how true to history am I? And and sure, there definitely were moments, you know, in the writing process where I was like, oh, this is terrible, you know. But I do think that, you know, ultimately, it it, it pushed me in a sort of lovely way. And I, I think, and in, in some ways, is really um, allowed me to stay true to sort of the the version of my myself who, like in college, like studied these things from a more academic perspective, and then wrote more personal stories about um, black women's body and my body, and then now allowed me to go into a more historical context. So in that way, it was great. The story centers around one character, this character, Mm -hmm. uh, Philomena. Was she always the vehicle through which you were going to tell this story? Yes, the the original uh, proposal. The original proposal, I think her name was Elizabeth. I don't remember where Philomena, when that changed, <laughs> um, but it did it somewhere along the line. Um, and it, it, was, it was always, um, it was always sort of beginning to follow her story. Um, a very, very, very early rendition of the proposal that we didn't even make it to Sloan, I think, actually had us looking at uh, the historical context. Um, and then there was going to be like intercut with a more present day context in which a one of, at the time, Elizabeth. Uh, descendants was now a gynecologist hmm. and reckoning with that history. Um, and then I was very politely told, Charlie, that's like two different plays. And I was like, right, okay, cool. Um, you know, and so, you know, maybe that play will one day exist. It was always sort of like, she was always sort of the one. And, and part of the reason why I think um, that was the case, also back when we, I was using um, everyone's real name, the other women in the story were going to be Anarcha, Betsy, and Lucy. And then this character of Elizabeth and then Philomena was going to allow me to sort of explore that experience without necessarily having to, like I said before, put words in um, Anna mm-hmm. Garbetti and Lucy's mouth in mm-hmm. the same way. And so that's sort of how that idea came um, mm-hmm. to be. And then as, as time went on and as, and as I sort of loosened the, the parameters a little bit, Philomena now embodies what we know of, of the experience of of those women. I was also struck by the fact that the doctor in the story mm-hmm. who stands in for Sims, he does uh, obviously some terrible things and you don't shy away from that, but you don't make him an out and out villain either. And mm-hmm. I wondered how you came to shape that character was it important yeah. for you that he not be sort of twirling his mustache <laughs> you know i mean I, I think obviously i think there there he has grown as a character too there was a certain point i kind of, kind of was, it was clear to everyone that like i needed to spend more time on on him because the, the women not that they were easier to write but you know there's more of a personal connection to them you know and so i i think short answer is like is yes but you know, here's my, my thing about Sims is that I I as a as a black woman who is a gynecologist 
I, I benefit from some of the work that he did, clearly. Like, he created the speculum, I go to the doctor, they use the speculum. You know, the field of gynecology really kicked off because of his work. And I think that I can hold that and be like, okay, thank you, in some fashion, while also acknowledging the fact that uh, the way that he came about those discoveries and, and, and these tools and all of that were on the backs of black women. And I don't have to like that. And I can think that is terrible. And I can recognize that all of this happened in a system that itself was evil, called slavery, right? I don't need, I, I don't know if need the right word. He doesn't have to be evil man twirling his mustache to do uh, to do something that we now look back on as, as horrendous, right? The, the sort of unfortunate thing about history is that very often the people who were doing things like that, you know, lived their lives, had friends, were, were honored, continued to be honored in some of our historical figures. Their sort of evil sides, if you want to call it that, are, are more complicated than calling it like since they're just saying that they're evil. Um, I think I think we we would do better at times to really get comfortable holding the good and the bad that, that some of our historical figures have done. We don't, I don't want to sanitize him, so I didn't want him to be, oh, look, he's so nice, because that's not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And just in the same way that I didn't want to do that, I didn't want to go too far the other way either. And I think also... Some of the things that he is saying in the play, as I said, are, are things that either Sims said himself or that um, other doctors and scientists at the time said. Things um, about black and people like, not experiencing right. and pain not and so on. Pain and, and not needing um, the same um, sorts of things that white patients needed and a number of other, you know, sort of racist and or sexist um, things. You know, it's too easy sometimes to be like, well, they were just evil that doesn't exist anymore right mm-hmm. it's like no like these things still exist and it's not just people that we can easily deem as evil that have them um that have these beliefs so um trying to negotiate all of those different thoughts and feelings sort of led to the my character of george that we see and, and there are people that have come and been like oh he's terrible he's evil and there are people that have come in and been like he's too nice you know and it's like you know in one way i, I you know that also shows what we come in with and the knowledge that we come but I But I do hope that it, it opens, sort of opens up that, that conversation. Um, There's also yeah. uh, a lot of uh, love and support between the women and mm-hmm. there's a hint of a love story between um, one of the women and a male mm-hmm. worker on the plantation. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering why you... Uh, incorporated that into the play. Mm-hmm. The play is really hard, you know. As, as you said, I, you know, we we try not to shy away from the more painful and maddening aspects of the story because that's important, and that you know, it's important for us to have to sit with that history. But that also means that I'm showing black people in pain. That's really, you know, that's what the play requires. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of plays. Uh, that deal with black pain. And there have been, actually been a lot of articles and, and things sort of trying to decipher and, and unpack what that is. Why why uh, writers, why theaters, 
you know, um, often in a season, you know, unfortunately, if there's like a stereotypical black play, it is often dealing with our pain. And I have a lot of I have a lot of thoughts that aren't complete about all of that. But it did feel really important that if I was going to, you know, share the story of black pain, which I do believe needs to be shared, that it's in, it was important for me to show aspects of black joy. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, one of the reasons being that when I imagine my ancestors who, you know, um, some of whom were slaves, um, and I try to imagine how that they survived, the only thing that makes sense to me is that they had someone or someone to lean on, that they had each other in some fashion, um, that they had a community, that they found these moments of, of joy and communication. And so, you know, uh, we leaned into it. I leaned into that as a writer. Colette Robert, who directed the piece, you know, leaned into that as, as a director and really showing how um, these women who, you know, really were, you know, women with this condition, with a fistula, were considered pariahs. They were in pain all the time. They did not smell good because it, it literally has um, urine and, and feces, endorphesis keep dripping out of you. So mm -hmm. it's not a pleasant experience. People did not want to be around these women. So the only community they had was each other. And and again, when I imagine Annika, Betsy, and Lucy and all the other women, like how did they get through that? Like I can only imagine because they had each other. Um, I sincerely hope that that is true. I don't know, but I hope that that is true. And so I put that hope into the play. And and then the love story, you know, um, there's there's an element of, of, of wanting there to be hope and what are the ways in which there can be hope and, and their story you know, um, is a little inkling of hope and people have come up to me with different ideas of, you know, will they, won't they, but you know, that little inkling of, of hope and of laughter and, and of, of seeing, um, you know, seeing somebody sort of fight for this person that they care for, um, felt really, really important. When you add it all together, it really forms and textured look at this story, at these women at that time and that we don't usually see and so um, I want to thank you for it and and I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us about it. Of course, thank you for letting me talk about it. <laughs> thank you. And thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway Radio podcasts which you can find on Broadway Radio dot com.